leave us not comfortless with the words of that collect, that prayer that we prayed a few moments ago. And um, uh, if, if you don't know the church's calendar, then uh, Thursday was Ascension Day. That marked the, uh, the day when 40 days after Easter, Jesus uh, ascended uh, to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, and there's this period of 10 days of waiting that is documented in the book of Acts where Jesus says to the disciples, wait, pray, wait, and I wait until you're clothed with power from on high. And, uh, and then 10 days later, there's this extraordinary gathering, this extraordinary outpouring of God's Spirit uh, at Pentecost. And um, this Sunday falls right in the middle of that sort of 10-day period that we are commemorating. And uh, next Sunday will be Pentecost Sunday. And it's always struck me that this is a time chiefly for prayer. It's a time chiefly to think about uh, going back to God um, on our knees, figuratively, or standing, however we are comfortable doing it, and saying, come Holy Spirit. Lord, leave us not comfortless. Leave us not comfortless, but pour out your spirit on us and exalt us to that place where your son is reigning on high. Uh, And so I'm going to talk about prayer. And I'm going to talk about prayer a little bit today, uh, some of what I've learned over the years, I think. Uh, And then we're going to do some prayer. And maybe if the welcome team can hear me through the speaker, they might take note that um, we're going to gather back the children and the youth so that we all pray and intercede together as a church. Because this Sunday marks the beginning of our week of prayer and worship. So uh, from from midday today, our intention is to try and keep 168 hours of continuous prayer and worship going uh, in this place, or kind of intentionally as a congregation, as we build up to Pentecost next Sunday and the launch of our two new Sunday morning worship services. Um, So it'd be great to spend some time actually praying and interceding for the world, for the church, for our neighborhood. Um, But let me share a few thoughts with you before we do. Father, we do ask that you would pour out your spirit on us to make our hearts teachable. Jesus, your disciples said, teach us to pray. And that is our request of you this morning, that you would teach us afresh how to pray, that we might be deepened in uh, this life of prayer, this vibrant um, work of a Christian, this, this profound relationship that we experience with you. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Let me begin by saying I know nothing whatsoever about golf. I've played pitch and putt um, a few times, but nothing more. But I have a story about golf that may serve as a useful introduction uh, to this subject today. I've got a friend of mine who is a keen golfer, and he had been playing golf for several years, quite happily, when, for a birthday present, his father brought him, uh, bought him some golf lessons to help him improve his game. You might think this is a fantastic gift for somebody who's a keen golfer, and in the long run, it was. But in fact, my friend told me that the golf lessons were agony, because his instructor made him unlearn all of the bad habits that he'd picked up over the years. Poor posture, poor bad grip, erratic swing, and the like. It was only after spending the majority of his lessons tearing apart his technique that he finally started to learn better technique, and then found that his game was improving. Well, maybe you, like me, don't play golf, but there are all manner of things that we do in our daily lives that we do on autopilot. I uh, broke my shoulder a few years ago playing football quite severely and um, was sort of immobilized for a while, and trying to learn to do everything with my left hand was quite a challenge. Sometimes we need to unlearn 
habits pick apart the things we do automatically to understand them better and to improve our performance in, in that area. And of course it applies not just to golf, but to any of the daily tasks that we perform and also to our spiritual disciplines, such as prayer. And that's what I want us to focus on today. So I'm making the assumption that uh, pretty much all of us here, alongside our daily tasks and the various activities that occupy our lives, that we pray. And uh, you might think this is a reasonable assumption to make since we're in a church service. But actually, how how about if I told you that most people in London pray regularly? That might surprise us, given that we are supposed to be living in a secular society. Jesus makes the assumption that people are praying when he speaks to his disciples. He says to them in Luke 11, when you pray, say this, not if you pray, when you pray. And Jesus' assumption that people would pray seems to be accurate today, whatever the media might have us believe. Now, a few years ago, um, the organization Tear Fund conducted a survey, and uh, there was a report published, and uh, they found several really interesting things about the habits of prayer in the UK. 42% of UK adults say that they pray outside of church services. 18% of UK adults say that they pray every day, almost one in five. And here in London, 73% of adults pray regularly, including the 12% who claim to be non-religious. So this kind of reaching out beyond yourself in prayer, reaching, stretching, yearning, seeking God somehow in some way is prevalent. What do the 42% of the population who pray pray for? 68% of them pray for family and friends. 41% pray to thank God, 32% pray for guidance, 26% for healing, 25% for worldwide issues. And of course, in a week like this week, with the atrocities and the awful bombing attack in Manchester, people who would not regularly pray find themselves led to prayer, find themselves led to reach out beyond themselves, seeking comfort. Leave us not comfortless. Comfort us. Heal. Change the world. Why do people pray? 10 million people, 50% of all the people who claim to pray regularly, believe that prayer changes the world. Now that's equivalent to one in five UK adults. 32% of people who pray claim that they've seen the effects of prayer in their own lives. The uh, Archbishop of Canterbury during the the Second World War, William Temple, uh, famously said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. One in three UK adults, 16 million people, agree with this statement. There is a God who watches over me and answers my prayer. The same amount agree with the statement, praying makes me feel better. So, prayer is obviously still a big deal to people in this country, and it seems that Jesus was right to assume that people would pray. But the reading that we just heard tells us that Jesus was prompted to make this assertion when the disciples came to him. And said, Lord, teach us to pray. He gave them an answer. This morning, I hope that we can also be like the disciples, teachable. Now, let me begin, though, by, uh, like my golf illustration, by trying to unlearn a few things. I'm going to duck the subject of what I think prayer is just for now and instead think about a few things that it's not. So the first thing that it's not is represented by the image on the left there. It's not getting in touch with myself. It's not quite the same as kind of meditation or just trying to get good karma. I think it's Woody Allen who said that he stopped praying to God when he realized he was simply talking to himself. That was his line. 
And this expresses one of the popular misconceptions about what prayer is. And particularly with the resurgence of spirituality and new age movements, self-help in recent decades, there's been a notion that within each of us lives a divine spark, a God within each one of us, and that prayer is simply about getting in touch with your inner divine nature. Now look, there's nothing new about this. Actually, this idea of the human divine, the inner spark, has been around for centuries. St. Paul says that humankind's sinfulness, our fallenness, consists chiefly in exchanging worship of the creator for worship of the creature. That's Romans 1.25. And it's much easier to get into worshipping creatures if you believe that there's something divine about them. And that's why in ancient cultures people made idols, little models of wood or clay or stone, and then they would sometimes even carry them around as portable shrines to worship at. Do you remember that opening scene of the film Gladiator where um, Maximus pulls out his little kind of set of household gods Little idols that he carries around, believing they are divine representations. That's also why us modern people, though we might not make little idols to carry around for us, uh, create uh, celebrities to worship and adore, in the hope that we might become more like them, that we might share in their supposed success and happiness. We worship money, hoping that economic prosperity might bring us happiness, success, and power. We buy L'Oreal because we're worth it. We drink Coke because it's the real thing. We eat McDonald's because we're loving it. We added as clothes because impossible is nothing. And even if we see through the more blatant advertising campaigns, there's always a more subtle way in which our worship of money will find a way to be manifested in our lives. Property ladders, career-driven lives and the like. We cling onto the small promises of greatness and immortality because our sin quietly drives us to worship ourselves instead of the living God. And if we worship ourselves, if we follow that way of believing in this divine spark in each one of us, then prayer, we could say, is all about getting in touch with your inner self through meditation, crystal healing, yoga, self-empowerment courses, psychology, life coaching, whatever it might be. Have you ever noticed that in bookshops, there's a very good chance... um, that the books on prayer will be found near the self-help section, the religious titles near the mind-body-spirit section, never near history or politics or economics. Why is that? Surely books about prayer and theology should be near history, politics, economics, whatever it might be. Sometimes this idea about prayer is manifested in relation to nature as well, and people talk about getting in touch with God by being in touch with nature. Well, Wonderful though mountains and forests and sunrise and sunset may be, being in touch with them does not automatically put us in touch with God. Give thanks to the God of creation, yes, but worship the flowers, no. Christian prayer is not communion with na- communing with nature, and it's definitely not just getting in touch with myself. So the second thing that prayer is not is another popular misconception. It's not simply casting out a message in a bottle across the waters. One of my favorite old songs by the band The Police says, I'm sending out an SOS to the world. I hope that somebody gets my message in a bottle. And for several centuries, one of the most common forms of sub-Christian belief about God is sort of the opposite of the last misconception. This time, instead of believing that God is in nature or within ourselves, God is perceived to be remote, distant, and far away. 
And in fact, although we might believe that God made the world, we pretty much think that now he's just resting in heaven and letting us get on with things by ourselves. And in this conception, God is so far removed from our day-to-day earthly lives that to have any kind of communication with him is near impossible. All we can do is cast out our bottled prayers into the endless ocean of space and hope that they might drift across and reach God if we're lucky. Now sometimes prayer can feel like this. That's the reason that this illustration takes hold. Sometimes it feels as though God is distant, remote and absent. But rather than Christian prayer being exhibited in the act of vainly flinging prayers into the void, Christian prayer is angry and insistent with a shout that wants to, as it were, wake up God. I use that expression advisedly, for that's exactly what Jesus' disciples wanted to do when they were in trouble on the Sea of Galilee. They wanted Jesus to wake up and do something, and he did. That's what we see in in the Psalms time and time again. That cry, how long, O Lord, will you abandon your people forever? It's another shout of, wake up. But it's not shouted out across the sea to an unknown faceless deity, but rather to the near and faithful God of Israel that we are longing to act. Christian prayer is not a case of throwing bottled prayers into the ocean. So it's not getting in touch with yourself, it's not throwing out a message in a bottle. And finally, that's, that's the bat phone. Does anybody remember the old Batman TV shows with dodgy lycra costumes, memorable kapows, uh, and Robin's catchphrases? Holy smoke, Batman! Well, one of the things I remember vividly from that TV show was that Commissioner Gordon had a, a bat phone, a bright red telephone in his office, which gave him a direct line to Batman whenever, whenever Gotham was in trouble. And this image of a telephone hotline to God has also been popular in the church for describing what prayer is. But it's an image which I think has weaknesses, and I want to try and dispel it as an image. Firstly, it somehow reinforces the notion that God is, again, absent, in the sense that he's not in this place. Just as when I telephoned my mother in Devon, the very act of her answering the phone there, on the landline, not the mobile, confirms that she is there and not here or anywhere else. Secondly, this image reinforces the notion that our primary form of communication with God is conscious, active, and verbal. Because it's not normal to telephone a friend and then simply sit saying nothing, enjoying their company across the telephone line. But actually, in, in everyday life, very much of our communication is nonverbal. It's body language, it's eye contact. It takes the form of smiles, gestures physical touch. Finally, this image reinforces an expectation that we do the talking. Although, of course, the telephone conversation has the capacity for two-way communication, if we think of prayer as our telephone line to God and as something we initiate, then we tend to find that we do most of the talking. So I've been trying to, having said what prayer is not, I've been trying to find a better illustration of what I think prayer is. And I've landed on one idea which I'll suggest a little later. But it's a work in progress and you might have better ideas or helpful suggestions. But what is prayer then? Put most simply, prayer is communication 
with God in worship. But we need to do a tiny bit of theology to unpack that statement. Because when God reveals himself to human beings who are created in his image, a response is required, demanded. And when God reveals himself to human beings, that revelation is of the overwhelming presence of God's love, our awareness that he loves us beyond measure. So the response is one of joyful, grateful adoration. But our response is always tinged with shame, for we know that we've not lived the loving lives that God made us for. We have, because of our rebelliousness, because of our sin, marred his image in us, as the old confessional prayer puts it. In fact, our sin and our shame would overwhelm us and make it impossible for us to respond to God's love directly in prayer, were it not for Jesus. For God the Father, by Christ's life, death, and resurrection, elects to look on all humanity as he looks on Jesus, his only son. That's why the ascension of Jesus Christ is actually so important, because Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in perfect, unimpaired unity with God, his Father. And if we are with Jesus by baptism, by the Spirit, then we too are with our Father. And so united to Christ, we can bring our prayers confidently into the presence of God to respond to his love. So if we're going to learn to pray, we should do as the disciples did and first look to Jesus. Jesus began his public ministry in prayer. He prayed regularly in solitude. He marked turning points of his ministry in prayer. He agonized in prayer before the cross, submitting to his father's will. As the priest praying for his people, he also became the sacrifice who died for us. And now by his resurrection and ascension is made the heavenly high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. So following Jesus, we pray to the Father, as we're invited to in the words of the Lord's Prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus, as we're invited to in the book of Hebrews. And we pray in the power of the Spirit, who unites us to Christ and allows us to call God Abba, Father, as we heard in Romans 8 at the beginning of our service today. Ephesians 2 verse 18 sums it up brilliantly. It says, for through him, through Jesus, we all have access to the Father by the one Spirit. So with some theological foundations laid, that we come in Christ to the Father through the power of the Spirit, we can now think a little bit more about what our prayer actually is. And uh, this is where my ABC of prayer comes in. And I want to start with uh, A for acting. And acting might seem a funny word to use in relation to prayer, but I use it in the sense of being active in our approach to prayer. But I think it's also a useful term in thinking about the resources that we have for prayer. For just as an actor relies on the script to perform their role, so we rely on the words and the texts given to us by God and by the church. There's a dangerous myth that has taken, part in some, uh, taken hold in some parts of our culture that suggests that the only way to be sure that what we pray is authentic is to generate all of our prayers from somewhere deep within ourselves. I'm sure we all recognize from time to time in our own prayer life, particularly if we're praying with others, the struggle to come up with an original prayer or to pray in a manner that sounds as holy or theological as our neighbor. 
or the anguish of searching deep inside ourselves for a profound prayer when in reality we're distracted, we're discouraged, we're disturbed by our struggle, with any, our struggle to come up with anything to pray about. Well, into this kind of situation, Jesus speaks. His disciples asked him to teach them to pray, and in response, Jesus didn't ask them to search deep within themselves for the source of prayer. He told them, when you pray, say this. And he gave them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. We're not going to go into a study of that today, but uh, of course, I commend time to studying it, thinking about what the prayer is doing, how it is structured. Um, we had a sermon series a couple of years ago. Uh, the recordings are still online, so if you want to go deeper into the Lord's Prayer, there's a, a six-part um, study of it on our website that you can listen to. The Lord's Prayer and a whole host of other set prayers, some from the Bible, some written by other Christians through church history, and found in our books of liturgy or compilations of prayer, these all stand as a support to the prayerful life of Christians. A script, some resources to enable us to be active in prayer. Tom Wright, theologian and former Bishop of Durham, puts it like this. Some Christians, some of the time, can sustain a life of prayer entirely out of their own internal resources, just as there are some hardy mountaineers who can walk the Scottish Highlands in their bare feet. But most of us need boots, not because we don't want to do the walking ourselves, but because we do. Most of us want to pursue a life of prayer with God. And so we need the boots, the resources to enable us to do that. Rather than searching within for an authentic expression of prayer, we should look to prayer that is inspired, that is breathed by the Holy Spirit. And just as the Holy Spirit has inspired hymn writers of years gone by, so he too has inspired Christians who have written prayers, composed prayers, it's not so strange to find prayers written down and recorded in a book. In fact, half of St. Paul's letters to the early church contain recorded prayers for the recipients of the letters. Now, this isn't to say, of course, that it's wrong to pray spontaneously and extemporaneously, generating our own prayers, or that we shouldn't ask the Spirit to inspire our prayers. It's just saying that there are other resources we can use to help us. Inviting the Spirit's inspiration is central to our prayer life. But when we're finding prayer difficult, we can draw upon the resources available to us to ensure that our prayer life doesn't dry up completely. So just like actors, we can draw upon the scripted resources given us. And the other thing that actors do is they rely upon regular rehearsal. That's why it's important to develop habits of prayer. My early Christian years were particularly difficult for me in terms of developing a habit of prayer because I went to a church where the daily quiet time, half an hour when you first rose in the morning, was the sort of uh, the paragon of Christian virtue. And uh, anybody who knows me well knows that mornings are not my favorite time of the day. So getting up and reading the Bible and praying at six in the morning is just never going to be easy for me. And the delight and the freedom I discovered when actually I found that I could pray at night before bed was just uh, wonderful. One of the things I've really valued over the years is the daily office. Simple, short act of prayer, reading the Psalms, reading passages of Scripture from the Old Testament and the New Testament, praying for the world, um, spending time in the presence of God and, and, and gathering here and sitting in the chapel um, every morning and uh, spending some time, sometimes with other people, sometimes by myself, is really, really wonderful. And I do commend that to you. If you're free in the morning, come in and join in. 
You can follow prayer cycles, calendars of prayer, all those sorts of things. Uh, I'm going to skip forwards a little bit so that we can get through things. But community life is really important. Praying together. The writer to the Hebrews encourages the early Christian community not to get out of the habit of meeting together. And Jesus tells his disciples that where two or three gather in his name, there he will be also. Learning to pray with others is important for us as Christians. Seeking communion with God, he draws us into community with one another. There's much more that could be said about this now, but I want to encourage you to get involved with a connect group uh, or to sign up for a slot at the week of prayer. Um, Tanya's going to have the clipboard at the back uh, of church where you can sign up online. Join in with the monthly ladies' prayer and prosecco gathering. Come to the weekly prayer and pastries on a Wednesday morning. Join in with the half nights of prayer every quarter. Let's do this together. Let's uh, act and rehearse following the script and the resources that we have and join in in our prayer. But finally, in our activity in prayer, we're encouraged by Scripture to be persistent. A youth worker friend of mine used to use an illustration. He would take a milk bottle and a pebble and he would start tapping the milk bottle with the pebble. And, uh, and of course, he was saying it's impossible for him to break this milk bottle with this small pebble. But he said, if I keep on tapping, if I tap long enough, eventually this bottle will crack and break. Scripture invites us to persevere in prayer. In Luke 18, the story of the persistent widow is given. Luke says when Jesus wanted to uh, teach his disciples to be persistent in prayer, he said, be like this widow, don't give up. Paul urges us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray continually and in Romans 12, 12 to be faithful in prayer. And the reading that we heard earlier in Luke has a similar theme. If we're bold and persistent, God will answer us. That at least is the most obvious meaning of the parable about the neighbor asking a loaf of bread from his neighbor late at night. And the passage goes on to urge us to ask, seek, and knock that God might give us good gifts. But there is one word of warning here. The danger of this sort of reading in the passage is that we can characterize God as a sort of belligerent old man who's gone to bed, probably fed up, and irritably gets up to answer his neighbor's request. Well, of course, we know from the rest of the New Testament that this is not the character of God that we meet in Jesus at all. And if we take this view, there's a danger that we might deny God's grace in prayer. If prayer is only a matter of us being persistent and nagging God, then we lose sight of his generosity in answering prayer and giving the gifts that we need. So the parable encourages our persistence in prayer, but I think there's another way of reading this story, albeit more allegorically. And this brings us onto the B for being in our ABC of prayer. A for acting, B for being. Another way of reading our passage in Luke, is to see the neighbor who comes asking for bread as the Holy Spirit. The Spirit who wakes us up and prompts us to pray for those in need. Luke 11 verse 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. The one inside answers, Don't bother me, the door is already locked, my children are with me in bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. If we read this parable the way I'm suggesting, allegorically, we can view God as the concerned host who welcomes a friend in need and then asks us to get involved with meeting that need. 
This image has God knocking at the door of our hearts, urging us to wake up and bring an offering. It has us in bed, door locked, ready to go to sleep. And of course, we're friends with God, but we're not really willing to move. But because of God's persistence, because of his knocking, we will be moved. Now, I don't think this is the primary meaning of this text, but I do think this reading resonates with the image of Jesus in Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. I sometimes think that the Holy Spirit of God is knocking on the door of our hearts, saying, there's a world in need. Will you get up and respond? Will you get up and pray with me? It gives us an understanding of the Spirit as the one who awakens us to prayer. And sometimes when we've exhausted all of our resources for acting in prayer, sometimes when we have no energy to generate prayer from our own selves, this is when we depend on the Spirit to help us in our weakness. And this is precisely what St. Paul is telling us in Romans 8, that the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And I think this captures the sense that we sometimes have when we are uh, left silenced in the face of evil or suffering that we have no words to offer to God. We have a deep need to pray to God, but we can't articulate anything. Here, the Spirit comes alongside and draws us into the presence of God in wordless prayer. The image of childbirth in Romans 8 is helpful. We know that a child in the womb must come out. That is God's purpose. And the expectation of seeing the child face-to-face is full of joy and anticipation. Yet the process of bringing that child into the world is excruciatingly painful. So too with the new creation. God will bring his new heavens and new earth into being. And we're filled with joy when we catch a glimpse of what that might look like. But in bringing that new creation to birth, there is great pain for the old creation, which is stretching and bursting with the pain of childbirth. I don't know whether from time to time you suddenly get a smell of food cooking. Maybe when you walk past a bakery or a curry house or something and your stomach leaps and your mouth waters and you physically begin to experience the sensation of being hungry while having nothing there to eat I think it's like that for us in the world being born again in Jesus we have one foot as it were in the new creation in the resurrection life of Christ but the other foot remains locked in the old creation and when we see pain and suffering we cry out for the new creation to come quickly Sometimes we recognize joy, love, and peace. And again, we see the new creation for what it is. And we cry, come, Lord Jesus. But because we have one foot in the old order, there's a struggle and a frustration that the new creation cannot yet be fully realized and enjoyed. And in these times when words fail us because we're caught between the the old and the new, the Spirit comes alongside and prays within our very being. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called uh, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, and the significant theme of that book is this idea of wordless prayer. And the idea of wordless prayer may seem strange to us, but it relates again to that passage in Romans, that the Spirit intercedes within us with groans and sighs too deep for words. The Russian Orthodox monk St. Siloan was once asked how the perfect speak by which they meant, you know, people who are holy and made perfect. How do they speak? He replied, the perfect never say anything of themselves. They only say what the Spirit suffers them to say. In other words, St. Siloan is suggesting that when we're praying and when we're in communion with God, we allow the Spirit to inspire our prayers, to speak within us. For some of us, this experience is best addressed through stillness in prayer, not striving to act always, but simply resting in the Spirit's presence, 
asking him to guide our prayer. And again, I won't expand on this too much, but there are rich and deep traditions of prayer which invite us simply to contemplate God. This is not to be confused with the getting in touch with ourselves part, though. It's not that. It's enjoying the beauty of God without the pressure to act and to do. The contemplative tradition of prayer is often known through traditions like the Jesus Prayer, that simple repetition of a short prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or through Lexio Divina, the practice of slowly and prayerfully reading and repeating scripture, awaiting God's voice in the text and contemplating the particular verses of the Bible. So act in prayer, be active, use the resources, build habits, patterns. Be in prayer, be for being, um, rest, allow wordless prayer to take hold, allow the Spirit to inspire your prayer, and see, seek communion with God. William Temple, again, said, the aim of all prayer is the same as the aim of all life. It is union with God. A balanced life contains both the acting and the being elements of prayer, and there's so much more to learn about both, but the aim of both is to be united to God in prayer. That prayer is one of the ways in which God has made present to us. Prayer is a vital way in which we grow deeper in our relationship with God and, of course, one another, because when we're drawn deeper into communion with God, we're drawn deeper into the communion of his family, our brothers and sisters, one another. The mystery of prayer is that when we pray, we find ourselves once again in communion with God. The Holy Spirit has urged us to pray, as with those unutterable groans of Romans 8, or the persistent navel waking us up, if the Holy Spirit has inspired the content of our prayers through set prayers, cycles of prayers, patterns of prayer, then it's the presence of the Spirit in our prayer that assures us of the presence of God. I mentioned earlier that I have my own illustration of prayer, and maybe you'll find it helpful as we conclude this stage. I think that prayer is a little like stepping into a flowing river. When I was a child, I used to go and spend weekends um, with friends of my mother uh, on a cottage that had a garden stretching down the banks of the river uh, Avon. And uh, the the, the river flowed past, and I remember it very vividly. I remember swimming in that river. And you can swim and you can steer your direction, swimming up or down or left and right across. But there's also a current that will carry us as we float, whether swimming actively or floating, resting there is the inescapable presence of water around us. And in this way, I found that a helpful illustration of thinking that prayer is something that we do, but it's also something that is done in us by the Spirit, and it's something that immerses us in the presence of God. This image of a river helps me because, of course, Christian hope has a high place for a certain river. The river of life, described in Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street, of the city. And in Ezekiel 47, the image of the river flowing from the sanctuary, going deeper and deeper and getting purer and purer and purifying everything that it meets. If with prayer we can step into this river of living water and so find life in the loving presence of God, then I invite you with me to step in. Would you like to stand? And we're going to pray. And as we spend time in prayer, uh, we're going to invite the children and the youth back into our church. So maybe the welcome team, if they can hear me, could um, 
go and uh, let the children and the youth know to come back and return. Father, thank you for the gift of prayer. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we have felt your presence with us this morning in prayer and in worship.